Welcome to the Junior Year episode 26 of the Horror Pod Class. My name is Tyler, and I am the Editor-in-Chief here at Signal Horizon, a magazine dedicated to exploring horror both in and out of the classroom. When I'm not managing Signal Horizon, I'm a teacher at a local high school in Kansas City, Missouri, teaching by Zoom and by Skype. And tonight I am joined, as I am every night, with our co-host and monster ambassador here at Signal Horizon, award-winning writer, Oren. What's up, Oren? Uh, you know, same old. <laughs> same old, same yep. old. Yeah, yes. Trying to get by in quarantine. Yep. So before we get on to tonight's movies, we'll take some time to talk about what we've been watching and reading lately. We're, we're going to explore some free horror on the internet. And then we are going to wrap up with a conversation about the movie Antrim and the documentary Fury of the Demon. So before we get on to what I think is going to be a super fun conversation about those films, Oren, what have you been reading or watching or what is the, what's going on in the gray household? So actually I haven't been uh, watching much that was very excited. I did like exciting. I did like rewatches of some old stuff lately. Um, But uh, I've been reading, which is kind of relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. uh, A book that I'm going to be reviewing for Signal Horizon whenever I'm done reading it. That's uh, refocus the films of William Castle which is really interesting because, you know, William Castle is awesome. And uh, reading about him, it's it's like a collection of, like, academic essays about William Castle and his films and that kind of stuff. So that's been fun. Yeah. I love, uh, A, I love the subject matter. B, he's kind of like your patron saint. Yeah, I love him. Like, when when I think of William Castle, I first think of you. And. And yeah, he he might be my favorite director, even though he is certainly not the best director. <laughs> I I think that's probably a pretty fair evaluation. You know, like he is, uh, and, and a great guy to talk about in the context of um, the films that we're going to talk about today. But like half showman, half director. You know, like total magician. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's pretty cool, man. Well, I've read this. Uh, fascinating article i'll try to find it because it was shared by one of my director friends on facebook about what the like what the future of american cinema is going to look like and the argument he offered was that covid in uh connection to the supreme court ruling that like uh distribution companies and movie companies now can own movie theaters Mm -hmm that we will see a radical consolidation of movie theaters by big production companies and like like Disney or whatever mm-hmm. and they will and they will start to focus on bringing people back to the movies by making it more immersive mm-hmm. and the the one big uh, director he threw out in the article was William Castle yeah. right uh, it was like you, you're going to have to do something like that to get people to leave their house. Right. I and mean, I think I, mean, yeah. I think part of it is going to be like, so if, if we're operating on the assumption, which I've seen a lot of people operate when they're talking about what life is going to be like after COVID, is that things will never go back to not being like this a little bit. Because even once we get this under control, there's always the risk of another one. And so like the days of no social distancing at all may be over forever. And if that's the case, we're going to have to have theaters that don't rely on packing people in. Mm-hmm. We'll have to have theaters that are more, possibly more expensive, which is terrifying prospect, but more, uh, that have fewer people per, per auditorium. Right. Um, which you'll need then to make the experience better if you're not selling it in mass you know like because you may have to charge more for it or whatever so you have to make it worth that yeah um so yeah i mean um it's interesting that you mentioned the supreme court case because part of what made william castle happen in the first place was a different supreme court case that essentially ruled the opposite that um that broke up uh block booking which used to be uh the big studios would force theaters to if they wanted to book a movie they had to book a bunch of other movies like they had to book movies in groups they couldn't just book one right yeah 
And when the Supreme Court broke that up, it led partly into, like, hucksters like William Castle getting in there and trying to, like, sell their individual movie. Like, that you had to... It made selling one specific movie more of a thing. Yeah. Well, and that was the... Uh, like, the ultimate argument of the article was that they will... And this is both good and bad, I guess, for the context of both of... We, we should probably say, if you don't know already, both Oren and I love to go to the movies. <laughs> we are big movie-going atmosphere types of uh, guys. So uh, that being said, the, the argument essentially is like taking William Castle's mode of uh, like immersive storytelling or whatever you want to call that, but applying it to a larger scale, mm-hmm. right? And so like the, the evil dark side of that is that you will go into an AMC that is owned by Disney and like have to pass through a little gift shop if you want to see the new <laughs> Disney movie, you yeah, know, right? Yep. Uh, but the opposite side, right, or the brighter side in all of that is that you could have these really cool immersive experiences like, uh, you know, Universal may come in and buy Cinemark, right? So every movie that you see in Cinemark may have like uh you know a 4d element to them or like more of a party atmosphere like you would see at something like secret cinema or something like that and there's as there is to anything good and bad and i just uh man i I don't know yeah i've been saying for for many years like way before COVID happened that the the sort of multiplex business model that we are operating under, which is a relatively new business model. I mean, movies are a relatively new phenomenon, but like until not too long before I was born, you know, there, it was like one and two screen movie palaces. That's where you went there. There were not these multiplexes that we have now that have like 30 screens. And um, like this, this multiplex business model will never hold up in the modern world because movies come back. They come to streaming too quickly. They come, uh, you know, yep. we have what are essentially miniature home theaters in our houses now. We all have surround sound and fancy TVs and all that shit. Um, and so movie theaters will have to differentiate themselves in some other way. Just being a big screen that's air conditioned won't be enough. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> like. I, I think the the point of the the argument I think of the article is there was that yeah it pointed to the big article that came out maybe two weeks ago that led to this huge panic in the movie business that like trolls fucking three D part seven trolls on parade electric boogaloo or whatever the new trolls movie right. uh, that came out it, it they released it straight to you know VOD essentially. Right. And, the, and they charged a premium price and it made like fucking $22 million or something like it, a massive amount. And it totally uh, outsold what the first Trolls 3D or whatever it was. And so like all it, it caused all kinds of ripple effects, mm-hmm. including like the folks that made Trolls to be like, maybe we'll just release shit on VOD now. And then like AMC said that they weren't going to show. Cause I think it's a universal film. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're, we're not going to show any more universal movies. Then it was this huge, like the bottom line is I don't think you can put that genie back in the bottle. Right. And like, I think there are certain movies now that are going to have simultaneous VOD releases. Oh, yeah. So then like, why go to the movies? Why, why, why make that happen? Yeah. And, you know, and, but I mean, but I think that's been coming. Like, co- yes. COVID may have accelerated it, but that was always been the trajectory all of this was on. Oh, hundred percent. Um, and so, yeah. like, yeah, the the, I don't think it will mean the. And I, I sounds like I probably agree with the article. Like, I don't think it will mean the death of the movie house. I think it will just mean a a change for it, which is probably good because honestly, I don't think the big, I don't think the big corporate-owned multiplexes are a great thing for cinema, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I have... uh, There is a place in my heart for, like, an AMC theater, because I was, like, an an A-list stuff, Mm -hmm. whatever the fuck it's called, and I could see whatever movie I wanted to right after school, and typically I could be one of, like, 25 people in a ginormous theater, and, like, 
put my feet up and, right. and do whatever. And like, I, I enjoyed the convenience of getting in and getting out and seeing a movie in the format it, it was intended to be seen. Right. In, you know? Yeah. I mean, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with them either necessarily, but I don't think they are. I, mean, I don't think they did anything beneficial for the form and I don't think they are long for this world. Like I don't think they will be the dominant life form in in that particular ecosystem for very much longer. Yeah. Well and in not in this iteration. Right. You know, right. like it they're gonna have yeah, to Yeah, something will change and we'll have different kinds of movie houses. Which again, did we own has happened many times now in the short, short lifespan of the of the movie. Well, and I think the good news for us, right? We love the Screenland armor. We've talked about it multiple times. That is a, a very specific niche mm-hmm. that I think will not be impacted by any of this kind of turnover. No, I mean, the only thing that I can see that would impact them is, like, they make a fair bit of their money off of first-run stuff. And so if, like, if picture houses start, uh, if, if studios start buying theaters, they might stop licensing their stuff out to other theaters right it might be it might be a thing where you have to go to a universal theater to see a universal movie and that could hurt places like the alamo and um and the screenland because while we love them for their specialty program it's not where they make most of their yes that i mean and that's true it's not where they make most of their box office so yeah well in i think you've already seen some ripple effects from the alamo draft house in that they just got a new CEO, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then they sold off Birth Movies Death, which was their kind of website angle right. that helped run Fantastic Fest, but it also helped advertise and do a bunch of other stuff. So, I mean, it will be interesting to see where it all goes from here. And, you know, of course, our fingers are all crossed for our uh, beloved movie theaters. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, um, now that we've talked about wanting to see what we have watched, I I should mention what kind of has been commanding my attention. Uh, Z, which will be out uh, the day that this drops on Shudder. I got an advanced copy from the good folks over there at Shudder, and it is a ton of fun. It's, uh, by, it's directed by Brandon Christensen, who did Stillborn, which... Uh, is I think a really interesting movie that has some pretty creative and inventive scares. And uh, Z is in the same vein. It's like a creepy kid movie. Um, Premise is basically there's an invisible friend, right? Mm -hmm. An imaginary friend that is real and comes alive and and causes mischief. There's there's a lot more to it than that. (laughs) But... uh, it, it's like a much darker version of Drop Dead Fred, <laughs> I guess. I thought, I thought so, Daniel uh, wasn't real was the much darker version of Drop Dead Fred. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, uh, yeah, I, more, I, keep seeing, of, I keep seeing ads for Z, and every time I see an ad for it, I ha- I, I'm reminded that it's not a zombie thing. Like, I keep thinking it's a zombie thing, and then I see an ad for it, and I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's not a zombie thing. That's something else. And I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's because of Z Nation or something. There's some reason why I always think Z's a zombie thing, and I'm always surprised when it isn't. Yeah, well, that's... Uh, so I got the the honor of interviewing Brandon yesterday, and there'll be a, an extra bonus episode coming out with that interview soon. But that was one of the things. He was like, Everybody thinks that we're a zombie film, right? And especially Canadians, because they don't refer to the movie as Z. They refer to it as Zed, because that's just like, right. typically how they... And so then he's like, oh, it's... it's," And he said, it's an SEO nightmare. Like, there's no way somebody can search for my movie on Google and get the right thing. <laughs> so he's like... So he gave me some tips and you know, that kind of stuff. I worked into the review. But yeah, I, it was... Uh, it's a really fun movie, and... Uh, Brandon is a really cool guy that I think is uh, working hard to make scary independent cinema. And I, you know, like I'm down for that. I'm really down for creepy kids, dude, (laughs) because kids are the fucking worst sometimes. So Uh, I will also mention Grady Hendrix's new book, which came out a couple weeks ago called The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. I just finished like two days ago, and it is a wonderful book to read on Mother's Day. Uh, I have a real hit or miss 
relationship with Grady Hendrix. I have loved some stuff. I've not cared for some stuff. But this book, I think, absolutely rocks. And it almost, like, accidentally has a lot to say about misogyny and <laughs> class. And, and, like, I, I, you know, for his other stuff, which seems, like, almost devoid of that purposefully, I was like, oh, okay. Like, we, he feels very much like his, his writing has grown up a bit and like I, I highly highly recommend uh, you get a hold of uh, yeah, I mean, the Southern Book Club's guide I know I know his movies have definitely like the movies he's written have definitely taken swings in that direction of like talking yeah. about misogyny in class and that kind of stuff so yeah 100%. like uh, um, didn't he write uh, Satanic Panic yeah. is that uh, yep. which was freaking fun and uh, bonkers but yeah I don't know what else he is. He wrote Mohawk. He? <laughs> oh. Um, he, wrote, he wrote Satanic Panic, which I really liked, and Mohawk, which I didn't. But it, you know, it had those same ideas going on, Mohawk. I just don't think it yeah. did them as well for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think that's fair. You I, know, but... We have, uh, we have shared off mic uh, our feelings for that movie. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's how we feel about that. Let's talk about some free fiction on the internet, because we have double trouble for you all today. Double trouble, two pieces. Uh, one is a revisit of an article, uh, a short story in Apex Magazine. Why don't you, uh, since we kind of talked about your love of this short story, uh, talk to us a little bit about it. So or... I did not actually reread it immediately before the episode like I should have. I meant to, but I didn't. But I've read it before, and it's really good, and it's by Jimma Files and her uh, partner, Stephen Berenger, and, you know, anything by Jimma Files that touches on spooky film is going to be aces, and it is. Um, it's called Each Thing I Show You is a Piece of My Death, and it was, uh, it's kind of a, it's a found footage, uh, you know, short story, so it's, um, it's an epistolary story where it's, like, mostly, like, news articles and emails and that kind of stuff. Um, and it's super creepy, and it was nominated for Shirley Jackson Award. And if you've read uh, her novel Experimental Film, it's got a lot of the same stuff going on as that did, and it's just really, really good. Yeah. it And I'm just a sucker for that kind of compilation, yeah. you know? Like, it, it, it's got a series of emails in it, yeah. too. Yeah, and very few people and... do them like better than she does, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. She does a really good job of, like, of making them seem genuine and making them, like, creepy in a way that really gets under your skin. Yeah. And I, any time that we have writers that screw with form, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not like just reading a short story, which is fantastic, and I love doing that, too. But... When you can manipulate the form of which the story is told in, like it, it creates buy-in and a, a level of dread. And I will tell you, the thing that it tapped into, even before the internet was around, we had like urban legends, right? right? And we we had these legends surrounding film, like yeah. that you could see a a munchkin kill himself in, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz, or in Three Men and a Baby that there was a ghost, you know. Right. And this short story taps into that kind of zeitgeist, yeah. you know, that feeling that there is this creepy shit happening beneath the scenes of a beloved film and nobody fucking knew it was there until, you know, much later down the road. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and like it's got its own within the story. There's essentially a creepypasta like yeah. folded yeah. into the story of its own, like the background man and all that, like. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, and, and yeah, it definitely deals with that, with the kind of haunted or cursed film trope that we're going to talk about this episode yeah. for sure. So the other thing that you absolutely have to check out, uh, today is the new pseudopod this week, which is my favorite short story of all time. And one that has, I think, direct bearing on today's topic. And that is John Langan's Technicolor which actually I think showed up first in uh, Poe, yep. which, yeah, yep, po. which yep. yeah, which is a, like, 
it is amazing to me how many just incredible stories showed up in that anthology and none of them are i would say lame pastiches of an edgar Allan poe story they're all like reimaginings yeah oh no they're fantastic there's some really fantastic stories in that anthology and uh technicolor is one of them it is essentially a college lecture that folds in the story of how the mask of the red death got written i guess yeah yeah uh sort of yeah yeah right and and it it is big like a gigantic capital w weird though (laughs) (laughs) like yeah and yeah you're right it definitely it fits beautifully with what we're going to talk about um this episode because like it it deals with like these multiple levels of fictionality i guess you'd call it where like you're talking about a real story and the real history of that real story and then like the sort of mythological history of that story and then just completely made up stuff that sounds credible and then completely made up stuff that sounds less credible and there's all these layers of like which part of this is true Mm -hmm. um which definitely is something we we get into in the films that we're going to talk about yeah so let's uh Let's get into it, all right? So let's let's move into tonight's essential question, which is, can movies really make people do things? And to explore that question, we're going to talk about two movies that are ostensibly about cursed films that cause people to riot or kill themselves or kill one another. So uh, respectively, we'll first talk about Fury of the Demon from 2016 and then Antrim, which is a newer movie both of which are out and available on Amazon Prime. When Edgar organized the screening of the film in France, I think he wanted to prove that it wasn't a myth. Numerous people were taken to the hospital injured. Six individuals died in the fire that ensued. Ce que réalisait Méliès était vraiment révolutionnaire. Le trucage dans les dessins, dans l'illusion. Fury, the demon directed by the renowned French cineast Georges Méliès. We weren't expecting the reaction to be so so violent. People were screaming, they were shouting, they were trying to kill each other, man. C'était un spectacle. Les gens étaient comme comme fous, il y en avait qui 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 s'arrachaient les cheveux, qui se battaient, qui se cognaient. Il y a beaucoup de films qui sont qui ont disparu et on en retrouve de moins en moins. Un film it was cursed. I've never seen anything like it. Cinema is full of legend. There are legends about controversial films, banned films, lost films, even genuinely dangerous films. But I think that Fury of the Demon probably goes beyond all this. Vanished. Never to be seen again. Okay, since we're talking about two movies tonight, uh, this will essentially act as our spoiler bell. We are going to talk in depth about Fury of the Demon and Antrim. So if you have not seen those films, uh, especially starting with Fury of the Demon, it is only an hour long. Put us on pause, go watch that really fun documentary, and then uh, come back to us and uh, hear us jabber on about Fury of the Demon. Now, Oren, you brought fury of the demon to my attention how did you a discover it and b what did you think of it so i discovered it i think because um eli who runs magnetic magic rentals had mentioned it to me at some point but um i watched it because i had watched antrim and it came up as one of the things that was recommended to watch if you just like you know other things like this on Amazon Prime or whatever. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, Eli had talked about this and he'd been having trouble finding it or whatever, and now here it is on Prime. So so that's how I watched it. So I watched them in the reverse order of how we're going to talk about them. Uh, Which I bring that up mostly because, um, and this is going to get a little bit into what I thought of Antrim, but um, like when I watched Antrim, which is like 15 minutes of a documentary, fake documentary, and then the cursed film of the title. Uh, uh-huh. My my like my letterbox review was essentially like, I wish there'd been more talking heads. Like I just I yeah. just wanted the people to be like <laughs> I, I wanted more of the documentary part and less of the movie. And so then I watched uh-huh. Fury of the Demon, which is literally all documentary part. 
And I was yeah. like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally scratched that itch. And and uh, I will say, so the long story short, we should tell you that uh, probably before we go into the rest, I should uh, give us a brief summary of what Fury of the Demon is about, because it is a documentary uh, I will say there is no caveat to it that says it is not documentary. So there are some dubious facts that maybe we will get to in just a bit. But, uh, I mean, everything here is billed as real, and most of it is. So uh, the Internet Movie Database uh, lists the brief kind of summary as a documentary investigation on the rarest and most controversial French movie in the history of early cinema, a fascinating lost and dangerous short film, which causes violent reactions to those who watch it. So the long story short is, uh, it's essentially about, uh, Millier, Millies. I think it's, I think it's Millier. Okay. And uh, who, like, I think you were a lot more familiar with. Oh, yeah. I know him because, like, I've seen that kind of 30-second clip of a spaceship right. uh, to the crashing moon into the moon. Yeah. yeah, right. I've seen that a thousand times, and I never just, uh, you know, uh, placed it with this particular director. I'd always known that it was, like, a, a French style of, of, of almost absurdist filmmaking. but. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Georges George Millet is, if I'm pronouncing his name right, is um, he's amazing, and like anybody who's yes. anybody who's really into film, especially old film, will will know who he is. Um, and he's kind of one of the pioneers of the motion picture uh, from back before there were like feature films or you know film editing or any of that stuff, where it was just like shorts and it was all like experimental shorts, and that was all there was. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can, you can go to like probably any library and find a, a DVD or something of like a bunch of his short films. Um, yeah, I, th- you could probably find, I think a lot yeah, of that. On there's YouTube. a lot of them on YouTube. Um, and I mean, he made, like, I think the estimates are like 500 and some odd films of yeah. which, you know, maybe a couple hundred survive. So there's like more lost than, or than, or than survive. Um, but well, oh, and I, I think uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the documentary is they talk to all of these kind of uh, French uh, film scholars and, and historians. And they're like, we, we discover new milieu like every year. Yeah. He's like, somebody will like be cleaning out their closet. And, and some of that is culturally like France is just really old in Paris <laughs> in particular, you know, like, like they, they, they have attics that right. people just don't go into for, you know, a hundred years. And, and so like that adds in the mythos because there is this film and it's been screened like two or three times. Like it pops up, it gets screened somewhere and then it disappears again, which adds to the, that mythos, adds to that kind of drama of it all. But uh, that's that's where Fury of the Demon comes in. If we discover new uh, milieu every year, right, right. then, uh, you know, maybe one of it is going to be another film like Fury of the Demon. Yeah, and so that's, so that's one of the, like, one of the sort of really interesting things about Fury of the Demon for me is that, like, uh, it it's... Its hook, right, is that there's this there's this film that causes these riots whenever it gets shown, right? And the film's not real. Um, I mean, as near as I can tell, and uh, all the history of it is not real, but everything else in the documentary is for the most part. And so, like, it's this hook to trick people into watching what is essentially like a uh, beginner's documentary about melee. Yeah, um, and so like like it's it's simultaneously operating on these two fronts. Where on the one hand, it's sort of pretending like it's this kind of sensationalist, spooky thing to trick you into watching a documentary, but at the same time, it's doing a really good job of pretending to be a documentary to the point that it's fuzzy what's true and what isn't. Yeah, like it's hard to find online like concrete anybody who doesn't treat it like just a straight up documentary um, mm-hmm. when, when, you know, like it's core premise is made up. Yeah. Well, and in the, 
documentary, right? In, in quotations now. Goes as far as to do that thing that documentaries sometimes do, which is within the documentary, make the counter argument to examine it, mm -hmm. right? Because you have this whole, like, uh, uh, this whole interpretation of Fury the Demon, this whole interpretation of, like, cursed films like this, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, uh, to turn audiences against one another and do this really awful thing because there's, there's, almost a spiritual element to it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like, it makes the opposite argument in the second half of the film. They interview, like, uh, Alexander uh, Aja? Mm -hmm. Aja? My wife is probably yelling at me because of pronunciation. But uh, who I love. Like, I like his stuff. And he comes in and he's like, look, I, I have some film gravitas very clearly, right? He's a director. And he's like, hey, man, sometimes back in the day they would uh, have – this this thing that would happen with the actual film canister where if it was heated up you know when it spun through the light it could release a psychedelic chemical that may make people do this thing you know mm -hmm. i think that's total horseshit i don't think it's real yeah right? well, like they even they even go so far like it wasn't him it was one of the other guys who like compares it to um ergot or ergo poison oh, right right which is one of the right. things they think was what maybe caused all the witchcraft trials and everything so it's like it's at once, like, giving a naturalistic explanation, but also folding witchcraft back into it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right, and, and so, like, even if you're the skeptic, right? Like, in, in you know, sometimes I find myself playing that just, just by nature. Then I'm like, oh, shit, all right. So here's, here's a way out that you can get the skeptic even to buy into the fact that a movie could do that kind of thing, right? <laughs> uh, it is important to note... Uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, the, the, the kind of villain of this documentary, who I think is also the really cool and interesting <laughs> shit, uh, his name is Victor Sicarius, who is essentially like his right-hand man, his protege, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who, his sous chef, if you will, who like got so into uh, what Malay is doing that like he took it a step too far, right? right. Like he, uh, I think the story that they tell in the documentary is that he like vivisected a, a fox on camera, and, right? Like, and then like secretly screened it to like a group of Parisian like aristocrats or you know whatever. Right. And they were like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah, and uh, like banned him from ever making movies again or some shit like that. Uh, he's entirely made up. Yeah, near as I can tell. Yeah. Oh, as near as I can tell, man. he's completely made up. I would, again, you know, if, if anyone knows any different, like if they're pulling from something that I couldn't find in my research, please, by all means, let us know on the uh, Horror Pod Class, you know, Facebook group or something. But as near as I could tell, he's entirely made up. That said, like, the storyline about him, like, vivisecting the fox and filming it, that, that's very credible. Like, they were definitely doing stuff like that in this time period. Um, oh, yeah. 100%. Like, uh... You know, there, there are not a ton of extant versions of it, but absolutely, you know, like film film in the very early silent era was doing a lot of weird stuff that we don't think of film that old as doing, including, yeah. you know, showing, like, real animal deaths and real gore and that kind of stuff. Um, and you can find, like, uh, you know, the... Is it Salvador Dali? Uh, anyway, the Unchin d'Andalou um, is a famous, like, old... French, uh, I think it's French. Anyway, yeah, there there are films from that time period that are that are pretty disturbing uh, for things like that. Yeah, and I think it 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 is not fiction to make the argument, especially in the early ages of film, that there were directors that were pushing boundaries. Right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, Malay is one of those guys that used. Uh, not something unlike a William Castle that we talked about earlier, all kinds of like gimmicks and, you know, kind of sticky stuff to make short horror films. Like if you look at his pedigree of stuff, like he's making scary movies. He's making haunted house films before like haunted houses were things, <laughs> you know? And uh, a lot of his shit like carries with it titles that, you know, just sounds scary, right? Yeah. Like uh, Fury of the Demon Notwithstanding 
uh, he's got a ton of titles that have like demon in them or haunt. He's got a really famous uh, Faust short mm-hmm. film that kind of gives us the modern in, uh, interpretation of what um, the Faustian, uh, you know, agreement kind of looks like. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I don't know. That's what makes the documentary work so well is that like that uh, he totally could have spawned all kinds of uh you know disciples that yeah. you know wanted to to i don't know do, do something kill. actually occult on film right 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 yeah i mean because and like uh you know a lot of the movies all of his movies look super creepy too like yes um partly just because you know he's doing spooky stuff and partly because he's like he's actually doing it all in camera and so there's like that uncanniness of you're actually seeing a real thing happen. Not, I mean, it is a special effect, but it's all happening in camera. So there's not, there's no post-production yet. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's something definitely unsettling about a lot of it that like later movies are not unsettling in the same way because, because they're a little more, uh, a little more produced and a little more, um, you know, smoothed out and not so rough around the edges. Yeah, uh, I'm going to include um, a YouTube video of one of his uh, shorts called The Haunted Castle. Oh my god, and... The Haunted Castle so creepy. Oh, it's uh, and, and, and it is perfect in, in highlighting that kind of unsettling nature because a lot of the illusion is created through either superimposition or like various hard choppy cuts, right? Mm-hmm. And everything modern has a rounder edge to it now. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it look more natural, which I think we're used to. And that's what the audience wants. And and you don't want to go. go I was going to say the other, the other thing is that like the old films, everything looks unnatural, right? Like the stuff that isn't a special effect looks a little unnatural because you know the the film stock and the speed and all that stuff it it makes everything move a little wrong you know it makes everything look a little off because we are used yeah. to something very different and so the the special effects just blend with that offness that it all already has and makes them feel uh-huh. a part of it yeah and and i think that is the genius that holds up so well with Georges Millet's work is it's like he almost knew that was going to be a thing mm-hmm. and uses that uh, to sell the illusion more. Yep. And so, you know, he's like, ah, this shit already looks kind of creepy. I'm going to, you know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to run with it, right. you know? And I, I just, uh, I, I think it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and it makes Fear of the Demons so credible, like at the film, mm-hmm. like the film, the, the documentary is so credible. Um, yes. Because it, it's all such like, eerie stuff and they use so much of it that's like all all the footage is from real you know millier films um right and so and it's all such creepy footage and so yeah um i mean it, they really do a fantastic job so uh, like i think uh as we get closer to wrapping up our conversation about the first movie this is a 60 minute long documentary i don't want to call it a pseudo documentary because I think it's more documentary than yeah. than pseudo, but uh, like it is fantastic and charming, much like Malay's work, and uh, entirely worth your time. Yeah, so. and if you are not particularly familiar with him, it's a great introduction to yes. him. So yeah, yeah. It, it it fundamentally is. And the good thing about this, as of three days ago, even if you don't have an Amazon Prime account, most of us do, but some of us don't. I believe it's available to stream on Tubi TV too, nice. so you can watch it entirely free and uh, check it out. And here's what we want you to do: uh, join us, as Orin mentioned earlier, on the Horror Pod Glass Study Group, where you can share what you like, what you dislike. Uh, maybe you think this documentary is garbage. Maybe. In your internet research, you have found a copy of Fury of the Demon that is going to make us all go crazy here in quarantine and, uh, you know, run out in the middle of the street and, you know, without our masks on or whatever. So If you did, please, yep. please do send that along. We definitely want that. <laughs> yeah, yes, we absolutely do. All right. So 
anything left to be said about Fury of the Demon? I don't think I don't think so. Independently of the other film, I think we might want to, we'll probably talk about them both a little bit, like once we've talked about both of them. But yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, so let's shift our focus to Antrim. the devil landed when he was cast out of heaven. And at that spot, we'll find the entrance to hell. The Antrim. The deeper we dig, the more the forest around us becomes darker. And with each layer that we pass, deeper in hell we'll be. Spoiler bells rung for both of those. But I will give you a little more setup. The Internet Movie Database gives us the summary of Antrim, the deadliest film ever made. And that is its full title. It does have a uh, (laughs) semicolon there. A young boy and girl enter the forest to dig a hole to hell. Said to be a cursed film from the late 1970s, Antrim examines the horrifying power of storytelling. Okay. Um... We both loved uh, Fury of the, the Demon. Um, what did you think of this one? It was fine. Yeah. Um, like, so, again, I, I wanted more documentary, less movie. Uh, the movie was creepy. I mean, I'm not going to argue that it was not, it was not occasionally creepy. Um, but, like, for me, it was, not, it was not as credible as an actual film. Like, that's what it was supposed to be. It was not as credible as, uh, you know, a movie from the late 70s. Um, yeah. And, like, I liked the buildup of it more than I liked it. Yeah. Um, I, I I loved the first 15 minutes. I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool, you know? And it, it's almost like we have completely, like, on the Likert scale, we have a zero and we have a 10. And what I mean by that is, like, you don't see any of the actual movie Fury of the Demon is based off of. Right. And you see the whole fucking movie that Antrim is based off of. And I think Antrim would have been better off, like, maybe not showing the whole thing. Right. Like, show some clips from it or something. Yeah. And, like, yeah. And, and the setup to me felt like they had made this movie Antrim and they, like, added the other part to pad it out almost. Like,. Yeah, it didn't like there to me the two parts the the faux documentary and the movie itself did not gel together to create a, a hole that made each other stronger. Yeah, if that makes any sense, they just felt like they'd been stuck together. Um, and like I know from people who know more about this than me that um you know they did a lot of stuff to make like the film quality look like it was actually shot on whatever millimeter of film it would have been shot on and that kind of thing. Right. But, like, as far as, like, the pacing and the style of the movie, it was so obviously a modern film. Yeah, yeah, that is, I mean, that's very true. Um, And so, like, to me, that was just, like, it would have been a lot more interesting to see, like, clips of a movie that seemed more legitimately from the 70s. Yeah, and, and I think you could hide some of the stylistic stuff that you... Like, here's the bottom line. I don't, I don't expect anybody to go make a full length feature film like they would have made in, in 1972. Right. right. Like it, I just, I think that would be unnecessary and really difficult and maybe a, a great kind of art school project, but 
as a commercial film, I understand why you wouldn't do that. Right. But that also means that you're going to have this weird incoherence between those two things. And if I just got five minutes of the film, right, and then interjected three or four talking heads uh, talking about those five minutes and then progress through the film, I think you can still build tension. I, I think you can still make the overarching argument that Antrim is trying to make and maybe in a more effective way. Right. I think so, too. Yeah, I think I think Antrim would have been I think Antrim would have been better either without the Ballyhoo and just as a film on its own or uh-huh. with more Ballyhoo and less film. Either yeah. either way would have improved it, but like putting the two together, I think actually weakened it in its current form. Um, well, it, it, the one thing it does go for, right, is it it goes for this this idea that uh, commercial advertisements, arguably some films, uh, there was this big kind of push in the eighties and nineties to explore subliminality, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, and Become kind of immersed in our pop popular culture, and through the use of sigils and antrum, we get a lot of that. Right? Mm-hmm. We get these like sigils that are flashed over and over and over again. Like this would be the thing that would cause us to right. go bonkers or whatever. And uh, they do mention a little bit in Fury of the Demon about subliminal messaging and right. how like cigar burns uh on film can sometimes trigger particular reactions or whatever mm-hmm. uh so like i appreciated that about antrim is it's it's making an effort to explain yeah. uh on in the actual movie what causes that reaction well, yeah. I was like, one of the things i did really like that they did in antrim which again it was back to the documentary part was at the end like over the credits when they talk about um like they talk about how that got onto the print specifically um that like someone had gone in and edited in the black and white sequences of the man and the woman oh, in yeah. the cell and that like the sigils were not in the original print they had been they were clear cells that had been stuck over each uh each frame right right and stuff like that and like that stuff is interesting like that like sort of cinematic detective story of like how did this get happen who how did this get done who did this yeah that kind of stuff and i think more of that would have benefited the film oh yeah totally and and again another great connection between the two films because like uh uh, did a lot of his stuff through that superimposition right? right combining frame and you know that kind of stuff so like i think there can be a really neat connection made between those two um yeah, and I I would have liked a little more exploration of the film itself because, like, the bottom line is I just don't find the story of the movie all that compelling. Right. I mean, it's... It's kind of a mess. Yeah, I mean, right? it's creepy enough in spots and it's, it's sort of ending um, moral, which also is weird because um because again the the ending moral of the film itself doesn't seem to mesh with the overall theme of the movie as this like deadly cursed film um which is is all very weird but it like yeah it just um the film on its own is fine but it's not like you said it's not that compelling and so i think it needs more of the other and less of itself help um yeah and it's definitely not for me. Like the, I could have done without all of the weird, rapey, Satanist hillbillies. Like, yeah, that was very strange. Right. Like, and like, yeah, and the, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's why I say it's kind of a mess. Yeah, right? it is. Like, it is definitely a mess. The I, I feel fictional. I, I, I feel like it should have been a short film. Right, like yeah. a shorter film. Like you, you have like twenty minutes of it or something. Right, of these two kids going out and they're digging the hole down to hell because they want to save their dog and spooky things happen. Right. Like that could, that could, that could easily feel like 20 or 30 minutes without yeah. all these digressions. And you could spread that out with the talking heads and things and you could have a really creepy thing. Right. But a, a really creepy 60 minute thing. Yeah. Right. Like that, that, <laughs> And I think that that may be ultimately its its own problem. Like there is, uh, like, a folk backstory to 
Fury of the Demon uh, that is believable, right? Like, they have this conversation about this, like, society of scientists and artists that, like, gather in the, the... freaking catacombs of of paris and like drink absinthe and try to conjure the devil or some shit you know and that's all real actually but okay (laughs) Uh, but that that, like that kind of that that nuance that backstory that is the interesting part of the film there is not any of that to the actual story of antrim right? right there is these like random backwoods uh like devil worshippers i guess that have also built this like it's a really strange aesthetic in that film where yeah. it's like a rusty like yeah, the, occult artifacts yeah you know? it's it's a it's a moloch statue but like it's a really weird like made out of carper it's moloch statue it's very strange yeah yeah <laughs> right which is kind of cool but like i just it, it did not feel like it went well with everything else yeah you know so that I, I think we've been really harsh on Antrim. Yeah, so and I don't mean say, to be. Right, it was okay. I would say it was okay. Yeah, I mean it. It is. It is on its own a fairly creepy little film, um, and you know it's it's uh, deadliest film ever made. Shtick is interesting. Uh, while it's going on, I just I just wanted more of it. Really, is what yeah. it boils down to. I wanted more of that uh, documentary stuff. More, back, yeah. more background. Um, uh, the, probably the one thing that Antrim has going for it that Fury doesn't is like, you know, they, they sell this whole thing, right? It's the deadliest movie ever made, right? Blah, blah, blah. And you get that same kind of pitch from Fury, but everything feels very safe in Fury because you never see it, right. you know? Like, it's, it's always this off-camera thing that we deal with from afar, which makes it... I, just a fundamentally different experience yeah. but that first two minutes right where you they're like Antrim is the deadliest film and now we're gonna show it to you there is that little tickle part of your brain that's like oh fuck yeah oh shit I'm actually gonna watch it right now. yeah and, I, and again I feel like again and I, I know I'm, I'm bashing it and I don't mean to be but like you could have really preserved that tickle if Antrim the film had been shorter yeah. If you'd seen less of it, because yeah. like that 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 moment of trepidation wears off when your movie's like seventy minutes long. Yeah. Oh, I agreed. Like um, then it you travel to a fundamentally different world, and as a result, you have all the protections of you know that the kind of veil that you normally drift over yourself anyway. Right. You know? Yeah. You you need something that's almost like. If, if you're going to show someone a movie that you tell them is going to kill them, it needs to feel, like, really immediate and short and choppy, almost. Like, the, the bits in the ring or something, you know? Right, right! And that's what makes the ring so effective, is it's not an hour and a half of Samara, you know, crawling out of the well. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, you just get this 30-second snippet of it. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Before we wrap up our conversation, I did want to highlight a couple of articles Number one, uh, our friends over at the Horror Homeroom have a really great discussion of Fury of the Demon, the mythological Millier film, uh, as compared to The Haunted Castle. And uh, uh, it looks like The 13th Floor has a really good discussion of other films that supposedly have some curses to it. Nice. Like uh, The Exorcist and Jaws and... Uh, all of that, and that's actually by Rebecca McKendrick. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, and if any of this is of interest to you, you should totally check out the Shudder series Cursed Films, which takes a, like a, a good hour-long look at uh, like five distinct films that have weird urban legends that surround them. And uh, I, I think may not necessarily be exactly what we're talking about here, but I think they'd be pretty good companions. So, so. you've watched the cursed films, on yes. Twitter, right? So the yeah. the one they do one for the Exorcist, yes. Yes. Do they talk about the actual serial killer in it? Uh if they do, it's tangential. The bulk of the film, or the bulk of that particular episode, is about like real life exorcists yeah you know? so Ugh. yeah it's, it's okay I mean, that's, that's uh, fine no i i just i i want to hear more about that the other subject it's not that there's nothing wrong with that 
Yeah, I don't. I don't remember them referencing it. Maybe they do. Okay, because um, um, that, that's just a really fascinating story. That is one of those situations where, like, a film has an urban legend that happens to be true. In this case, so so, so for the folks that aren't aware, uh, give them the. the so in the in the Exorcist, there's a scene. It's when Regan is a uh, Regan is uh, in uh, in the hospital. One of the times, one of the people. One of the techs, like working, you know, one of the, the nurse techs, is an actual serial killer. The guy in the film, he was an actual tech that they filmed at that actual hospital who later turned out to be a serial killer. He was committing murders um, at the time that the, the movie was made. Uh, and That's fucked. Right? And um, this fascinated uh, William Friedkin, who... Uh, then went on to like interview, was able to get permission to interview the guy in jail, and those interviews helped to inform uh, the making of Cruising, which is really? William Friedkin's movie partially about those killings. So, huh? Yeah. Wow. So. Well, I'm, I will have to go back. I'll have to rewatch that episode of this film, <laughs> see if they talk about it anymore than they do. Uh, interesting. If there's going to be a. Uh, a scene that could curse somebody, I guess it'd be one from a serial killer. Right. right? Well, I got to tell you, um, we enjoyed both of these films pretty evenly, you know, like uh, there's room to, to love both. However, <laughs> our anonymous Amazon user did not like Antrim one bit. It is one of my favorite uh, an- uh, anonymous Amazon user one star reviews I've ever read. This one is a delight. And here we go. Oh, and hang with it, uh, because it, uh, it it starts off pretty morose. My This is anonymous Amazon user. Uh, reviews, leaves a one-star review of Antrim, the deadliest film ever made. My grandfather smoked his whole life. I was about 10 years old when my mother said to him, if you ever want to see your grandchildren graduate, you should stop immediately. Tears welled up in his eyes when he realized what exactly was at stake. He gave it up immediately. Three years later... He died of lung cancer. It was really sad, and it destroyed me. My mother said to me, Don't you ever smoke. Please don't put your family through what your grandfather put us through. I agreed. Now, at 28, I have never touched a cigarette. And I must say, I feel a very slight sense of regret for having never done it. Because this movie gave me cancer anyway. Don't watch it. <laughs> it's so good. So... It's so good. <laughs> um, it's like the the build-up is... Perfect. That is a plus. Yeah. That is an that is an A plus one star review right there. Like I'm not even <laughs> mad. That's good. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um I also like that like inadvertently it's kind of playing into the movie too. Because right okay. the movie kills you if you watch it. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well also like there's a story within a story, right? There's a fiction probably right. around the Yeah. It it is meta on so many levels. You know, like sometimes that kid that doesn't listen is just not listening to you because he's probably smarter than you are. <laughs> and and uh, I think that may be the case here. It's this guy. Uh, tonight's anonymous Amazon user has his own whole thing going on. It's delightful. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is 100% delightful. Who knows? Uh, anonymous Amazon user may write a story for uh, Dark Corners next week that we'll highlight. <laughs> It's like an O. Henry story, kind of. It, it I is, don't know. It like, is, yeah. It's the, the, internet, <laughs> so the internet O. Henry story. <laughs> All right. So, bravo to you, anonymous Amazon user, for uh, finally getting uh, your teachers to laugh and uh, for a stellar review of a, probably a pretty mediocre movie. So. <laughs> okay, Oren, uh, where can they find more of your stuff on the internet? I am, as always, I am Oren Gray at Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, or at orengray.com. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Ty Unsel. Or if you have a pitch, if you want to write something for Signal Horizon, if uh, you want to be involved in the staff, maybe review a book or a movie or something that's coming out, feel free to hit me up at Tyler at SignalHorizon.com. Would love to hear your pitches. We are paying, not a ton, but we are paying market now. So send us what you got. I'll be glad to take a look. Next week, who's coming on next week? Brock Wilbur is coming on next yeah. week, and we're going to talk about Event Horizon. Yes. Brock Wilbur is uh, the editor-in-chief here of our 
independent uh, newspaper in Kansas City called The Pitch. It's our dirtbag newspaper. Uh, dirtbag newspaper, I like that. Uh, I've been reading The Pitch forever and ever, and Brock's doing a hell of a, a, hell of a job with it. So Especially given the circumstances. Yeah, no shit. No shit. I cannot imagine, you know, having a whole bunch of, like, actual beat writers. Right. Because like, like, he's got, like, people that cover shit in town. Right, like, take, taking over the, like, arts and culture magazine or magazine for a town, essentially, like, month before the pandemic hits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, when there becomes no public, uh, you know, art events. Yeah, yeah, yeah no shit. Well, we are super excited to have uh, Brock on next uh, next week, so check it out. Until then, class dismissed. <laughs>